I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1975. No, it's not. The year is 1974. The album, Booga Booga. The artist, David Steinberg. My guest this week is Alan Mott. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you're welcome. I just want to start this off by saying to anyone listening to this, you don't know who I am. You, you started <laughs> listening to this podcast, and you're like, maybe this is some guy who like who's well-known and I haven't heard of. No, like I'm totally obscure. I've written a few books, mm-hmm. but I am not anybody in the comedy world. So it is just a pure mitzvah that Jason is allowing me to be on his show. I'm very excited to have you on here, and I'm also excited that you picked a Canadian, a fellow Canadian of yours. So. Well, well, and that's, I think, the reason is just because I've been a long-time listener to the show, and I keep waiting for this record to come up. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, it's Steve Martin and Elaine, <laughs> Nicholson uh-huh. May over and over again. It's like, yep. come on, guys. Like, mm-hmm. well, this is one I actually had a connection to that I thought, hey, I could I could talk, talk about, and it would be fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then if you want to think about Canadian records that come up, I think Great White North is the one that really ever comes up of any... Of yeah. any note. And then I have to press people. Hey, have you heard this one? Have you heard this one? And then, you know, but I'm glad that you picked this one because I had never, ever heard it. I know David Steinberg well enough, but I had never heard this record. And also, like, I, you could, like, it barely qualifies as Canadian. I think there's literally one Canadian reference on the entire album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally him talking about how he's a Canadian Jew. And that's about it. I think. I think. Yeah. Like, I could be wrong, because um, I don't know where this is recorded, but it sounds like America based on how he's speaking to everybody. Well, we'll get into it, like the, the first bit, and this is something that I really loved. when I, fir- I first heard this album in full when I was around 15. Okay. So this album, like I actually, I came, I was born in 1975. So I, it, this album was dated the first time I listened to it. Sure. Which, which, and it was only 15 years old. So you can imagine listening to it now, 45 years later. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing that I loved listening to it is how he gets a line saying, my parents are Russian Orthodox Jewish Canadians. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that the audience is laughing at Canadians. Yes. Everything right. about, everything else about that is normal. Mm-hmm. But once he gets to Canadians, that's that, that just makes it that extra bit of absurd. Right. And they just like, they just lose it. And I think that was like, as a Canadian, I actually liked the fact that we were the punchline. I thought that was actually very cool and very funny that we were so exotic that that's what made it like special. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. There is this weird American uh, lack of understanding uh, for many reasons that we could go into for hours and hours of Canada directly to our north. Uh, Yet I still think we're like, what are they, though? Like, what? (laughs) You know, and in terms of like, where do they come from? Maybe somebody, maybe people don't know the French. Maybe people don't know anything. They definitely don't know anything about the indigenous population because we're America. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, you're not wrong. I, I think you're right. It does function that that is that is the punchline. And uh, and he knows it. Yeah. He's <laughs> David Steinberg. I'm trying to think what I could tell people about him other than being a comedy writer and comedy performer, longtime well, comedy performer. Well, I, I think uh, like he's he, he he first sort of came to prominence uh, doing these religious bits because mm-hmm. he was he studied to be a rabbi uh, before going into comedy. And he basically went into acting and comedy because he saw that there were pretty girls in, in acting and comedy, which is a, very, a pretty standard story. 
but because he had this background in uh, in in religion, when he started uh, working with Second City, a lot of his like improvised bits would be basically him just giving funny sermons based on uh, on like sort of the the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and uh, and so he uh, he got uh, booked on the Smothers Brothers show when it was the top rated show on television. And he inadvertently caused the show to get canceled mm-hmm. because uh, because the uh, the executives hated him and they hated his religious bit. So they basically told Tommy Smothers, if you put him on the show one more time, we're going to cancel you. And Tommy Smothers was like, you know, F you. I've got the top rated show on television. You're not going to cancel me. So he put him on and they canceled him. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a rough one. I think we've talked before. If you guys haven't seen the documentary Smothered, it's it's dated in terms of uh, tech. It's like a standard deaf documentary, but it's worth watching. There's plenty about David Steinberg in that documentary. Yeah, it's it's a fa- like well he can he he's tried to overplay the myth a little bit by saying that it was the the specific bit itself mm-hmm. that got the show show canceled, but that isn't true. Mm-hmm. If he if he had done any bit at all it would have gotten the show canceled because they basically knew that Tommy Smothers at this point was a loose cannon who wasn't going to listen to them. And even if he had the top rated show on television, they weren't prepared to deal with that. I mean, maybe if he was like, you know, conservative, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a problem with him being a loose cannon, but because oh, he was basically a, a 30 year old hippie, then that was an issue. <laughs> Do you uh, have a memory of when you were first aware of David Steinberg or is he just enough of a household name in Canada? I have no idea because I had to learn about him in my 20s. He, he really, uh, I mean, I'm an outlier because I am someone who is so obsessed with pop culture, even as a young kid, that I tended to pick up stuff really early. Okay. So I had heard of him. Like the, the, my, the, my gateway to this album was around grade six or so. I discovered that there was a radio show at 10, a, 10 p.m. on Sundays that would play clips from comedy records. Okay. And so I would, my bedtime was nine o'clock, but I would like, st- I would stay in bed and I had like a stereo behind me my, on my headboard. So I would stay awake for an hour and then I would record that, uh, that, that, that show. And then I would listen to that show every day for the next week until it was time to record a new episode because I had a limited amount of tapes. And uh, through that, I heard about half of this album just like, like in pieces. And uh, so I, I remember when the first time I heard a bit from him, I was like, oh, yes, I've heard of this guy. But this was the first time I had ever actually heard any of his comedy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did how much of it tracked and how much of it didn't? It's very, like, this is a very, a very 1974 specific record. Well, in some and that's, that's part of the reason why I, I like it is because I'm, I'm the complete opposite of everyone else. When they use the term dated as a pejorative, mm-hmm. when I hear that something is dated, I run to it. Mm-hmm. I love media that is a very specific snapshot of its time. Like to me, that is far more fascinating than something that is so-called timeless. Because to me, timeless means probably they showed a lot of good taste and restraint. <laughs> and I have no interest in that. Like I, I like something that is very much like this could only have existed in this moment. Like the example I always bring up is one of my all-time favorite movies is Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy which was a movie that could only be made in a very specific six month span in 1967. And that's sort of, that is like my idea of like great culture. It's just something that just 
couldn't have happened anytime else. And this is very much an album that is like that. Like, and it's sort of try like listening it to it now. Um, I'm not prepared to call it a good comedy album. I think, sure. I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty light. I think it's not like it, he, he goes to some interesting places, but doesn't really explore them to the point that it actually becomes interesting. Right, right, right. It's a very shallow album, <laughs> but uh, I, I think the thing that I really appreciated it about it as a kid was I liked the musicality of it. And I think that was something, like, when I started listening to comedy albums, one of the things that I really attracted me to them was I love the idea of, like, this was this thing that I traditionally associated with music, and it had people talking to, on it but I found myself listening to them the same way I did to musical albums. And so as the comedians did their bits, I would listen to it like as if like a singer was like singing a great part of the song. So for me, like the, the joy of this album is like some, like, like what he says, my parents are Russian Orthodox Jewish Canadians. It's the specific way he says it, mm -hmm. it, it pleasurable. It's not even so much that it's a funny joke. It's just the way he, it's, it's the, the delivery. And I think that's a case like where it's not so much, it's the singer, not the song. I think the way he's delivering the lines is funnier than the actual lines themselves. That's absolutely fair. I, I think, honestly, that might be one of the things, I mean, obviously the um, <clears throat> specific content of the sermons was uh, of concern to the highly conservative folks who were running CBS during the Smothers Brothers years. But he also, he, he <laughs> I think one of the things that's most effective about those fine the joke the religious observations uh, such as they are are fine but he, he has a very specific way of speaking uh which again i always assumed was affected for the bit but it's very much uh on display in this record uh he just enunciates a lot he's a he's a heavy enunciator like a very well spoken sounding he sounds like he might be a little smarter than the jokes he's telling which i find interesting uh, he's a very specific speaker, and there's something about the way he speaks that, again, I, I, I think speaks to what you're talking about. Well, and also the other thing I like about uh, him in terms of like this is that I have I have a fondness for uh, for uh, show business personalities that I felt like bridge the gap between the generations. Mm -hmm. And I think Steinberg is very much like he's a part of him is very much old showbiz. But then also his material is sort of trying to be the hipper 70s like sort of thing. But like if you he he, he had a show in Canada called the David Steinberg show, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. It's not good, <laughs> but it's fascinating because uh, he's the host and his co-star is Bill Saluga, who no one will remember. He's a guy who's 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 best known for a Simpsons reference from 30 years ago. <laughs> he was the guy behind Ray J. Johnson. Like, you can uh -oh. call me Ray. You can call me Jay. Mm -hmm. So, like, like the fact that he's obscure to me, I feel like shows how obscure he is. But the, uh, the thing that makes the David Steinberg show notable is that the other cast is made up of future SCTV yeah. uh, cast members like John Candy uh, and uh, Martin Short and uh, Dave Thomas and, jo and Joe Flaherty. And so it's very much a show that feels like it's two generations colliding. Yeah, because it's like Dave, Dave Steinberg is it's very much old, like sort of like and the guests they have like the get like Milton Berle is an actual guest on the David Steinberg show. Holy is a guest on the David Steinberg okay. show. So it's very much old Hollywood, old showbiz. And you get the sense that that's what David Steinberg was more comfortable with. But he also recognized that, you know, this wasn't, you know, really going to get him far in life so he had to have fresh blood too so you have the actual funny bits 
with the people from SCTV. Yeah, that's phenomenal. He also, yeah, I, I got that sense just from him pulling a Dick Cavett and name dropping Groucho just to make yeah. a joke. It was either to yeah. ma- he made the joke to drop the name or drop the name to make the joke. I'm not entirely sure which. There's but... a bunch of name dropping on this album. <laughs> yeah. I, I Maybe Groucho's the oldest of them. I could be wrong. Maybe there's an older, and there's some references that I got to tell you. If you reference David Eisenhower, I'm out. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sure that's hilarious. They loved it. The audience ate it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's a whole there's a whole water Watergate bit on this, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. which does like one thing I like about dated things is that they often show us how much things have changed, but also how much things have stayed the same. And I feel like if you change the names in his Watergate bit, it's basically a Trump MAGA bit. Like it's Absolutely. exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Like literally, nothing has changed. And there's one there's one line uh, in this. Uh, well, do you want do you want to go like track by track, or do you just want to talk generally? I think I'm up for whatever you're more comfortable doing. Honestly, well, let's let, well, let, let, let's let, like, I think it might be funner just go like to, to go by the different tracks. Like the first track is uh, "Take My Wife, Please," mm-hmm. which is basically he talks about um, uh, marrying an Italian woman, and his parents are are Russian Orthodox Jews, and uh, how and, and and sort of it's it's basically about how um, difficult it is to find someone who will marry them and the and the best line is like uh the the rabbi who the, who he first sees is like your wife of course is a jewess and he's like yep and i'm the jewy <laughs> and and it's not not a great bit but i right. think it, it is it it, it 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 has even like sort of the 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 name of the 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 the, the, the track take my wife please like is Henny Youngman, like so, mm-hmm. it has that sort of, but also like it, it, it's uh, referencing like sort of moving on and going like beyond the old stereotypes, and like the probably the best line in the bit is when he talks about like we did manage to find like uh, a, a reform rivalry bordering not just on this side on Nazism, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which, uh, which I think is sort of like a fun little uh, insight into that era of like people who 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 and I actually. I actually had a roommate who was raised Jewish and converted to Catholicism. And he was probably the most anti-Semitic person I've ever personally known, which was ironic because he was actually raised Jewish. But it was a case of like every story he had was that was anti-Semitic was based on an actual experience he had with his family. (laughs) Oh, my good God. (laughs) That's rough. That's really funny. Do you okay? So yeah, so that's the the first bit is 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 that uh, oh my god? See here's the problem. Has he yeah he he's pulling the thing where he names shit nothing like what's actually in the in the fucking bit. Which by the way, I almost called it a sketch because this is not exclusively a stand up album. This is not. No. no, it it opens with dogs barking over the audience. We should point I, that well, out. Well, and that there there are a couple of sound effects in here that just come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. have no explanation. They're total like non sequiturs, and the my guess the dogs barking is probably they liked like they had the introduction and they had the space between him coming out and, and him starting, mm-hmm. and there was probably some audience chatter that they were like, oh, we can't have that on the record, so they played the sound effects over that. Because there's there's a couple of specific moments where you can definitely hear the audience in in the over over the album. Yeah. So they were clearly audible. So that was my guess is that they added that in just to drown out some comments that they didn't want to actually be overheard. Oh my god, that's possible. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Because he even there's even a quick bit where somebody does talk to him and he's yeah. cool about it. 
But well, he, well, he was like, uh, like, don't talk to me again, you know, unless it's going to be witty. It's just a pain in the ass up here, <laughs> which is like, yeah, and that was one of the uh, like when I when I when I was listening to this as a teenager, that was like some I just like sort of that that exchange, like mm-hmm. that sort of like that sort of made it feel like okay, like he could, you know. He, he could be fresh in the moment. It, like all of his bits weren't like, cause he's one of those ones where it does sounds like he's done these same bits over and over again, word for word, perfect. Mm-hmm. Like every night, like you're not going to see a different David Steinberg show. If you see him twice in a row, like you were right. seeing the exact same show twice again. But uh, uh, in, in his second, in his second track, uh, 33 revisited. That one is interesting listening again, because it's talking about how he's, he's now 33 and how old he feels and how he wishes he was young. And it's, it's fascinating because the first time I heard this bit, I was 15 and now I'm listening to it at 45. It's a very different experience. Uh-huh. Now listening to a 33 year old talking about how old they feel. And it's like, you just want to slap the dude and just be like, shut the fuck up. But that is, uh, uh, he does have a, a great line, like uh, where he's talking about uh, Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, who who named himself after the great Welsh poet Dylan Zimmerman, and like I was proud, like when I was fifteen, that I got that joke. Like, mm-hmm. that was, like that's like there are some like arcane references in, in here, but like it's one of those ones where like if you are like in on it enough that you actually get what the joke is, mm-hmm. you do feel like that little bit of extra reward. Like he never goes like um um uh, what's uh uh the Dennis Miller. He doesn't go like Dennis Miller level. Sure, sure. But then I always like I was a fan of Dennis Miller before he actually went evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and and so like I, I I've always been like I I am a sucker for an obscure reference like that because sure. it does make me feel smart. Uh, and then and then we get the third track, which was probably it's probably my favorite track uh, on the album, which is "When You're Right to Write" by Moliere. Mm-hmm. Which uh, opens, it, it's a, a bit of a politically incorrect opening where he talks about like ethnic groups, you know, yes. that is not entirely comfortable today. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but the, basically the, the gist of the bit is that he's, uh, he, uh, he, it's like the day before the big test. And he, he assumes he, he, he doesn't really need to study that much because he already knows the material. Mm-hmm. A- and then he uh, decides he's going to take a nap before he studies and then he sleeps all the way until the morning and uh, he has to take the test without having studied. And uh, I really, as a kid, I love this bit because I was that kid. Like I, I screwed myself when I got to university because I had literally never studied for a single test like before. <laughs> like I, I just, I, I was happy with my B. Like I, I, yeah. I, I didn't need to study to get that A. I was happy just sort of taking what I had gleaned in like class and using that to, you know, to get to get my B. So I totally understood this. But then, sort of like the the the, the gist of the entire bit, uh, it, it rests on the word moribund, <laughs> which I think is a, is a good choice. Like even like like talking about the audience being audible. At one point, you can hear like a woman say like I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah out loud it's so yeah. funny yeah and, and then and and that's like and then so and then so it's about him coming up with the essay like you know about how he has to like because the, the 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 question he has to answer for the essay is refute the allegation that the literature of the middle ages was moribund <laughs> and, and, and i think that's because like, it's clear that the audience has like most of the audience doesn't and and, and for if you're listening i, I it, it refers to obsessed with death uh-huh. That is what it means. So uh, that is, uh, so, and I, I think, 
I think the first time I heard this bit, I actually looked it up. So from that point on, I was able to listen to it and sure. actually, like have some idea. Like, cause I would have, I would have been around the age he was pretending to be in this bit when I actually heard this bit. And, uh, and there's a, my, probably my favorite part of the bit is probably another part that hasn't date aged well, uh-huh. but, but where he's talking about Helen Lewicki. Oh and, yes. Cause uh, he, he, he uh, talks about how, Beside him is uh, this uh, super genius guy with a big brain inside of which is like the sum total of the combined knowledge of the universe. And then on the other side of him is Helen Wiki, on which is a red Angora sweater, which is the sum total of Helen Lewicki, which is also the combined knowledge of the, you know, the universe. And mm-hmm. like, it's totally sexist and it's sure. uh, not, 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 not great. But I, I remember just listening to that and just thinking that was very much true of my lived experience as a 15 year old teenager of taking a test and being distracted by the kid who was getting it done like that. And the, on the other side, the girl you had a crush on mm-hmm. who just like happened to be wearing the most amazing outfit that day. Yeah. I, I will. I, I, I at the very least feel like it is in the character. It is in the mind of the 15 year old that those things are coming out at the very least. It is yeah. not. Yeah him justifying those thoughts you know so and i i also have to say like i am very much the same as you in terms of like i fucked myself over when i went to college because uh very much was an 11th hour wonder could just get it done whatever whatever i gleaned from class this whole bit about the actual report and how it ends up is yeah it's exactly how i've written papers and would well, pass you, somehow but you, because i'm a i'm a right now like my what my day job is i'm a copywriter mm-hmm. and there are times where i am tasked to write about subjects that i literally know nothing about yeah I have basically 15 <laughs> minutes to google and and so like even now like i might my, my ability to, to sort of bullshit like this is like that's basically how i make my living now Mm-hmm. And so, like, it does have a little bit of resonance. Like, uh... <laughs> uh, in my opinion, the literature of the Middle Ages is not moribund. <laughs> and then just goes uh, and then yeah. just uh, how, the the manifold ways he will tell you that that yeah. is the case. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> Sorry, but, but in order to justify how the literature of the Middle Ages is not moribund, requires a knowledge of that period, and then he ends it like, which I wish to God I had. <laughs> it's a solid bit it's a yeah. solid bit yeah and then he follows that up with a short bit called a uh, critic critic redux uh-huh it's like uh basically just uh well it's funny because like he talks about how sometimes he you know when you're exploring a bit which you get the sense of something that he probably never really did mm-hmm. I, I don't get the sense of him being someone who went on stage and really like sort of like well i guess he did improvise uh, like the sermons and stuff like that mm-hmm. but so he did. He did a bunch of Second City, but you listen to this album, you don't get the sense that he was a big improv guy, like in terms of his bits, like his nice sure. stuff. He liked. He liked it. Like he liked them to be very well rehearsed, especially like when you watch the David Steinberg show. Half of the show is just him doing stand up. Okay. And, and like some of some of these bits from this album are in that show, and they are pretty much exactly the same. Like the things that are cut are things that would have to be cut for network television. That's about it. Yeah. But but sort of he talks about how like the the big the big like the big the big joke is that uh, for this is that to him critics are like eunuchs at a gangbang like they can they can point everything out but they can't do it which in all fairness is an attitude I very much have too like I 
I, I, I pretty much agree with, agree with that sentiment, even though I, I write criticism all the time. Like to me, it's more just about like, I view criticism as more like an expression of like biography. Like this, mm -hmm. is, this, like, this is how I respond to this material because this is who I am. Less mm -hmm. that this material is flawed because of who I am. Like that's like I, I that's how, how I, I I view it. But like the, the joke is that he he's at do at this nightclub doing this bit and he makes a joke about premature ejaculation and the critic is like Chuck please mm -hmm. and, and, and like and I think I think there it's a short sort of like bit. I think it's only like it's like a minute and a half long. Mm -hmm. But I think it really does get to the heart of like how yeah some people like aren't really interested in the quality of the material or what the material is saying. It's just how it relates to them and, and how, which I think is sort of like, like it's, it's an inapplicable bit to today. I think a lot of now, now times people are like willing to completely ignore the actual context and meaning of a bit just because it has a phrase that like, they're like, oh, I'm out. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sometimes that guy. I will fully admit, <laughs> yeah. I'm sometimes that guy. Well, yeah, but... We all are. Like, you know, I, I, I was uh, yesterday... Uh, or, or no, it was Tuesday. A guy on Twitter said something about short and used it as pejorative. Mm -hmm. And I'm a short guy, and I just went off on him, like saying, like being sh like being short and being tall are not like character traits. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the way you're born. So saying someone is short and using it as if like that's a flaw in their character says more about you than it does mm -hmm. about. Them. <laughs> I almost did it about a bald thing the other day which yeah. it wasn't even directed at me it's one thing yeah if you direct it at me uh and if you've got permission to some of my friends have permission most of you don't just anybody who's listening most of you do not but you know it's one of those things you you, you got a trigger it's gonna well, happen man my, my i always tell people like i have no problem with a good original short joke mm -hmm. the problem is that the type of people who tell who tell me a stranger they have never met a short joke as soon as they see me they are not people who are capable of telling a good no. original short joke no we're just pointing out something that i already know uh-huh yeah hey i observed a thing okay <laughs> well that's not how that works but good for you ah <laughs> uh, yeah that's uh yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm and that then, yep. that bit starts with a car crash. I just feel like I should point out yeah. that's the bit with the second sound effect, a which loud probably, car crash. Which is probably again another audience like you, maybe they couldn't like yeah because it is like it is totally a non sequitur. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. It doesn't lead to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so or maybe somebody maybe somebody else on another album did something similar and they were like oh that's a thing we're doing now, and mm -hmm. so <laughs> uh, and so the the next track on that is uh, called uh, Guzz Guzzler's Gin. And it's basically about him being heckled by a drunk. Oh yeah, and uh, and, and 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 it's sort of funny because it's another one where, like, I feel like this is one of the bits that could be done today because it's basically about a guy who's sort of like annoyed that his jokes are on are are, are on the progressive side, mm -hmm. and so it's like, hey, Steinpink, you got any jokes that I would like? <laughs> Which I feel like is. That that is very much today. Like I hear yep. a lot of like comics now are having a lot of issues that anything that is even remotely anti-Trump can lead to like getting drinks thrown at them, no matter how benign or like simple it is. And 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 then the guy sort of ends it like, "You got anything? I would like anything about tits." And the cyborg is like, "Well, and if you if you're one of those people, that was it." <laughs> and which actually it, it, it sort of reminds me there's a there's a bit on a, a bill hicks album rants in e minor mm -hmm. called purple vein dick jokes 
which I actually thought like mine's very similar territory where he talks about like how like like don't worry guys dick jokes are coming <laughs> like he's sort of placating like the audience who are having to deal with his like you know leftist lunacy like you know, don't worry I'll 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 deal with you guys soon too like <laughs> I'd forgotten about that wow it's been a while since I've listened to Bill Hicks yeah he's he's one where like I feel like everyone who venerated him. Like in the '90s, we'll probably listen to a bunch of his stuff. And be like, "Ooh, oh, <laughs> that that hasn't aged well." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially, especially like I remember, like I remember, like when when I took my first job in marketing, I was like, "Oh, Bill Hicks wants me to kill myself," and he isn't joking. He's being serious. He really wants me to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, at least we know he's since changed because we know he's turned into Alex Jones, if you want to believe yeah. that conspiracy theory. <laughs> it is my favorite conspiracy theory, by the way. And I don't know why. I'm just obsessed with it. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I'll have to look into that one. But yeah. It's, it's weird. They they almost slightly look alike and, and the Texas thing, and that's about it. Like, And then somebody's just ran off. You know, it's probably a practical joke. And then yeah. a bunch of nut bars believe it. It's, it's one of my favorite weird Well, it's almost like the Alex Jones audiences are willing to, you know, believe really stupid things uh-huh 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 ah fun fun stuff uh alex jones not welcome on the show just in case you're listening um uh, <laughs> i know you'll go on other podcasts um <laughs> he then starts talking got i gotta tell you i know a little enough about last tango in paris but most of it went well over my well, head this, this was this, when i was a kid this was probably my favorite bit okay because because uh like okay, well this this is my this is I uh, my, I'm I'm a I'm a huge cinephile. I'm a big movie buff. That's probably like ninety percent of my personality. And uh, my origin story is that when I was around ten or eleven years old, uh, I went to the library and I discovered the section of the uh, library that was dedicated to to books about movies. And uh, and I by that point I, I was already a big movie fan. And I was a big reader, so it just made sense. Hey, these are books about movies. I like movies. I should read these books. So the first, literally the first one I pulled out of the stack was a book called Cult Movies 2 by Danny Perry, mm-hmm. which, uh, which uh, is about like midnight movies of the period. Which, and it was interesting because like at the time, I thought all of these were really old cult movies. But then when I realize now, I do the math in my head, a lot of these movies had only come out a few years earlier. Okay. So it was like one of those things where like the disconnect, but I open the book up and literally the first thing I see is an entry for a movie called the first nudie musical. And right in there is a picture of one of the women in the movie and she's topless. And I'm like 11 years old and I'm seeing boobs in a book (laughs) that I just stumbled across at random in the library. And it was like, I had won the lottery. Sure. I had just realized that there were books in the library <laughs> that had naked pictures of ladies in them. And so I proceeded to take out every single book out of that. Uh, but I found like the books that I liked the most mm-hmm. were the books like cult movies, which were about like sort of uh, like the outsider cinema, like the sort of the like l- less the movies that like were were universally beloved and considered classics. Sure. But we're like sort of the, the, so by that time, like, even though I was only 15, I hadn't seen Last Tango in Paris, but I had read about Last Tango in Paris because mm-hmm. it was actually in one of the cult movies books. Okay. So I actually knew the entire plot. And so I actually thought it like the line where he like, how about the movies about boy meets girl, boy rapes girl. 
he loves it. She loves it. Like I actually knew that was an accurate description of the movie. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and so like listening to this bit, and this is where he goes major name droppy because he talks about how like they're like he's invited to the screening of the movie, and for all we know, it's a bit. We don't know if this is actually true or not. But he talks about like how he's one of fifteen people, like and there's Mick Jagger and uh, Aristotle Onassis and uh, Jackie Kennedy and like all of these super famous people, and he's at at the bit, and the movie starts playing, and and he goes like, and it is erotic, and it is working <laughs> and, and, and he goes like I, I behave like exactly how people would expect me to i'm flinging myself on the screen <laughs> and i just love this like i love this image of him being like so horned up by this horny movie that he's literally humping the screen in front of like jackie kennedy and mick jagger and how they have to literally pry his fingers off the screen <laughs> but the thing that i loved about this is that it's all a setup for a, a a margarine joke, <laughs> I, like I I I got it when I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. Like I would have like I I am just I am just old enough to have gotten this joke. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I was a year younger, I would have had no idea what he was talking about, because the joke is is that there was a famous uh, there's a famous scene in Last Tango in Paris where he's uh, where Marlon Brando says to Maria Schneider pass the butter <laughs> and so she hands him the butter and he takes a knife and he takes a bit of butter and he literally spreads butter all over her body mm-hmm. and uh and he talks about like how you know Bertolucci you're good I loved every movie you did the, the spider stratagem the conformist you're good but you're not great and I, I know you're not great because when I would have done your movie just at the climax of that scene I would have had a crown appear on her head, mm-hmm. which is a reference to Imperial Margarine, okay. who, had, who had who had these commercials where basically the wife would make like would make like dinner for the family, and she didn't he the husband didn't know that she had switched from butter to Imperial Margarine, and the way he found out is he would take a bite and a crown would appear on his head. Holy shit! Wow, that is. Wow. Okay. And it, and and it's like one of those. It's a good joke if you know that. Well, yeah. When you know the context, <laughs> it's actually funny. When you know the reference, it's actually a good joke. But it is like like I I said I barely I barely got it when the album was 15 years old. I can't imagine someone listening to it now, 45 years later, like and and getting it. Like that's one of those things where yeah. <laughs> Rarely do I sit and write the note that I wrote, which was I do not get it. And I figured you'd be able to explain it to me, and you did. You did not disappoint. By the way, everything you've just described so far, if you guys have been listening and enjoying Alan. Follow him on Twitter um, because everything he's described tracks 100% with who he is on Twitter. You're a very honest Twitter presence. I will give you that. Well, and that's that's like that's always I'm always insulted when people like talk about like, oh, don't trust people online. They never are who they say they are. You know, everyone's like posing as a character. And I'm like, no, I am 100% myself online. And so like, if you don't like me, 
then like I actually do take that as a personal <laughs> insult because <laughs> you genuinely do not like who I am as a person. You don't like a persona I've created. You don't like me. <laughs> if, if that blanket wasn't behind you, uh, I would be disappointed. Uh, if you weren't wearing that shirt, I'd be disappointed, which I feel like I should point out. Now, is that is that specifically Elsa Lanchester's Bride of Frankenstein or is it? I think, I think it's just generic hip Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. And actually below it, it actually says, blow me. <laughs> And, and and the blanket is uh, Joan Collins from uh, from a, 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 an Egyptian movie uh, she she did. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'm very much. I actually thought it might look like uh, like I had done like a background thing, but no, this is the actual physical thing that is behind me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that tracks again. I love it. No, it's very very good. Um, Elsa Lanchester did two very good comedy albums worth listening to. Um, just thought I should point that out, just because that's a great shirt to think of. Hmm. And she's great in Murder by Death. Of course. She's fantastic. I mean, she's fantastic in everything. It's weird yeah. when she doesn't talk and has a stripe in her head. But, you know, she's also very good there, too. Those two albums are her literally just singing filthy Cockney songs, and they're great. Yeah. That's all it is. Um, let's, okay, let's, uh, what's what's the next track? I don't next have it track in front of me. Remember Pat Boone. There we are. It's probably my least favorite track on the entire album, because it's basically just a bunch of 70s references like or, or or referenced it together but i think even like as a kid like the thing i didn't like about it was around the same time i heard uh robert klein's uh uh mind over matter oh, and yeah. there's the opening bit on there called the final record offer which is basically the exact same bit and i thought that that klein's bit which is much shorter but also much better and so like to me it's like i just had I, it was really easy for me to compare the two Mm-hmm. And uh, the the one the the one the one line in this that n- never made any sense to me, and it was literally only until I was reading a book called Nixon Land, like f- like like five years ago, that I actually understood the reference. Was at a certain point he goes, "Remember meat," mm-hmm. and one thing people don't like don't remember from the Nixon era is that because of various reasons, the price of meat jumped dramatically to the point that that housewives actually went on like went like had public protests there were meat strikes during the nixon era and so like like the nixon era is so messed up that all of these things happen that people forget that people actually hit the streets to protest the price of meat wow and so like that's that that was that was like a reference that i never got all the times i listened to this album but it was then when i finally listening like i was reading like an 800 page book about the nixon nixon years that i actually like found out like it's like the guy the guy's actually talking about the meat strikes and as i'm reading it's like oh that's what david steinberg was talking about like it's like that moment when like you've like a reference you've never gotten and you finally like there's a there's a similar moment in the in the in, in the song on this album where there was a reference I never got. And then a few years later, I found out what they were talking about. I was like, Oh, that's from that album. (laughs) (laughs) I love that stuff. I love, I love when something becomes re-relevant. Like it's, it's, it's all of a sudden stuck in the back of your mind and you don't realize it, but that's, that's the trigger. It's we're weird animals like that, 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 that should happen. But also in the everything coming back, like sort of now, Mm -hmm. like, you know, conservatives, like, like Biden's going to take your meat away. (laughs) So it's like I said, we're just like pe- people who think that these are extraordinary times. Like, no, we're just no. going through the seventies all over again. Yeah, you would be drinking plant-based beer, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, the, the next, next one, is and that's yeah, this is absolutely the track that he could not get away with uh, 
today. You know, yeah, yeah. the opening, the the opening bit, which I mean, it's one of those ones where it's it's not a lie. Like there mm-hmm. are like some stereotypes do apply to some people. Like, sure. But but the way he, the way the way he phrases it, especially the line about uh, about Asians, is like that would that would get him canceled if he did that line today, no oh. doubt, like a hundred percent. But it's sort of it's uh, it, it, it it's all leading up to what is essentially a series of Watergate jokes. So unless you know anything about Watergate, like then you're 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 not going to get this, like. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I do know quite a bit about Watergate. So I do, even as a kid, I got a bunch of these jokes. But it, the thing that I find interesting is that there are a couple of moments where, and specifically women, boo him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't quite get, because the jokes themselves are like, are they boo them booing him because they're Nixon people who are like upset by the jokes? Haha. Uh-huh. Which you cause know, like well he's David Steinberg, like if you're a Nixon person, why are you at a David Steinberg show? Yeah, and, and but but then at the other hand, like it's like maybe they're like ultra progressive, and for some like reason that we don't understand today, yeah, like the, like the jokes have like I, I but that's sort of like it's sort of like interesting that he kept he kept yeah. like the, a, a bit a, a bit on the album where people are actually booing him. Mm-hmm. He does seem a bit like he would be a. a enough of a contrarian that he would really enjoy having that bitter reaction on, on yeah. the record. Like he'd laugh very hard at that. He, I was not expecting him a, again, everybody, just so you know, again, not entirely stand up because the next thing you could consider this part of stand up, but he plays a shell Silverstein song. He just straight plays a freak well, freaking and, at the freakers ball. Well, and that, the, 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 this is, this is probably the most fascinating track for me mm-hmm. because by this point, this wasn't a new song. He didn't debut this song. Yeah. By by this time, Shel Silverstein had recorded it for an album that Shel Silverstein did it, and Doctor Hook and the Medicine Band had actually made it into a hit song, like three years before this. But out of curiosity, last night I decided to listen to all three versions of the song uh-huh. just to compare them, and I actually have to say that viewed as comedy, I think his version is the one that's actually funny because he's so square. Okay. Because like Shel Silverstein, w- the way he sings it, he actually sounds like a maniac. Oh yeah. He, like, he sounds like somebody you'd back away from if you <laughs> ran into him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the, the Dr. Dr. Hook, like it's just a bunch of hippies. Whereas like I actually have friends in the King community mm-hmm. and they are the most square, normal people you will ever meet. So to me, like uh, Steinberg's version is funnier because it's actually closer to the truth, which is that all of these people at the Freakers Ball are really just a bunch of nerds <laughs> who are into role playing. Like they're, it's basically LARPing with <laughs> like ejaculations. Is what it is. <laughs> and, and so, and, and so the fact that he does it, like he just, he just sounds like this normal guy talking about you know like you know like. Like say sadomasochism and that, and, and talking about the reference earlier that like for it, it was when he was talking about the plaster casters, mm-hmm. and, and I actually found out what that was and who that was referring to. Like that was like a big eureka moment for me, and I was very proud of myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you're gonna have to walk me through it. Okay, well it's one of those things where the song sounds it like makes it sound like it's a kink. 
Yes. And it, really, it really wasn't. Really, okay. really, the plaster caster refers to basically two women who were groupies in the 70s. And their and their their gimmick was uh, when they when they hooked up with rock stars, they would make plaster of Paris in, like molds of their penises. And then they would take those molds and make candles out of them. And, and and so like, like but, and the funny part is like I don't think I was that old when I found like I think I was only probably like it was only like two years after I first heard this mm-hmm. that I actually found out like I was only like maybe like sixteen or seventeen when I first learned what the plaster casters were oh like it was one of those things where I was like really proud that like I had already like knew about them and had had heard this reference before but the thing is like and. It, and I'm sure that maybe somebody somewhere has written an article about whatever happened to the plaster casters. But like listening it now, like it, it brought up so many questions. Like it had me wondering, like, like what what did they do with the molds? Like, did they make the candle once and then destroy it? And then they burnt the candle. Was it like some sort of sacred thing to them, mm-hmm. or was it like a business? Like, did they like like I I like to imagine like like there are two like two women in their seventies now at like some like you know like farmers market selling like Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Jim Morrison's like penis cut candles, you know, like that they just. <laughs> Holy shit! This is um, I've never heard of this. I'm now fascinated. And I do want to know if, if uh, I will tell you right now, I can see a picture of one of them fairly recently holding one. So they held on to... S- so they still, they, they either they either didn't burn them or they still make them. <laughs> right, yeah. And like, there's part of you that's like curious as to where you can buy them because how, how, how could you not be curious of where, you know, maybe Mick Jagger's cock is? I don't know. <laughs> it's fascinating. That's phenomenal. And also, like, you wonder, like, how much, like, trial and error went into the making. Like, because I'm sure the first time they probably didn't shave the dude. And it was a total disaster. And you're like, who is the poor rock star who's picking out plaster of Paris from his pubes? Because nobody nobody shaved back then in the 70s. So it wasn't like... So it was a case where, like, after, like, oh, now now before we do that, we have this little ritual we perform where we have to shave you. And uh, (laughs) maybe that's how James Brown got the scream. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the beginning of I Feel Good. I mean, who knows? Uh, uh, and here's why this album is definitely not strictly stand-up. This next bit is a sketch. Now, Which, is he pulling an audience member onto stage? Is it, Am I understanding that correctly? I, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure that this is just a random dude. Yeah, so it is... And, and you can tell by the audience response... That this is a sketch that he's done quite a bit. That every, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's a documentary about him called Quality Balls. Uh-huh. And this sketch does come up. And I think this was like this was like his like when he was at, when he was like performing with Second City, this was his big sketch. Like okay. this was the big sketch that he was famous for. And it's called Booga Booga. It's where the album the title of the album comes from. And uh basically it's him doing Groucho. It's basically him doing his version uh, of like duck soup. But mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, the the joke is that he's playing a psychiatrist who is actually crazier than his like than his patient, and uh, he's like running around. He's like like throwing imaginary duck bugs off his body and stuff like that. It's it's funny because it, it like it's one of those ones where there's certain jokes that don't really make sense because we can't see what's happening. Yeah. And like it's like there's certain jokes because when I actually saw I've, I've seen like since seen this because it's actually it's on the David Steinberg show. He I think it's like actually in the pilot episode. Like it was like hit so big that we like we have to have the the big one in the first uh, 
in the first episode because this is the only way we're going to sell the show. And, and 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 like in in it in it he wears like this very vaudevillian outfit like it's straight out of the sunshine boys like the the, the tie goes down like to his knees and like and 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 it's and it's very much like when i say like he's very much like like his heart is in old show business i think that like this is very much the the proof this is very much like something that you would have seen like if if you had gone to see a vaudeville show in 1918 you could have seen booga booga apart from the fact that it makes some specific references to things that they wouldn't have talked about on stage then. Like, but you would have seen this in a burlesque theater in that area. Right. <laughs> Holy shit. And th the weird thing is, so this is his third record and he's busting that out. Have you heard his other records? I, I haven't. I actually like, uh, I only recently discovered that uh, one of them is available for streaming. Mm. I, I was going to listen to it before this just to get like sort of a, uh, a, a sort of like a comparison, but I didn't have a chance. But it's funny because like, like th this album, like uh, I had heard like half of it on this radio show, but like part of like part of my sort of like comedy on vile thing was for me it was comedy on cassette, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I would go to the library, and the, my local library had like a bin that had maybe at most at any given time ten tapes in it. And I had basically taken out every single tape. So as soon as a new tape appeared in there, like I was yoink. And mm -hmm. so one day this album appeared in there. I looked at the back and I got excited because it was obvious because uh, I could tell just by the titles that I had heard Booga Booga and I had heard Freaking at the Freaker's Ball. The other ones based on the titles, I, I, I didn't know if I had heard them or not. It turns out I had heard a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. But but like that was sort of the the exciting the exciting thing about it was sort of that but then his other ones i never came across them like apparently one is his religious bits which uh i don't know i don't even know if i would like that one because like having seen like this mother's brother stuff like i don't really find it that funny and right. i think that's because it's one of those it's the same reason why i don't like i don't find the exorcist to be frightening is that as an atheist that material doesn't really like you know hit me the same way it does someone who's like raised well this is my relationship to religion. This is my classic anecdote. Mm -hmm. It's that uh, around when I'm around 30, I, I'm walking into my parents' home, and uh, my mom is filling out the, the, that year's census at the kitchen table, and she's like smoking on her cigarette, and she takes a long drag after looking at a question, and she shouts to my dad, who is in the bedroom watching TV, and she goes, "Bill, what religion are you?" And, and, and then and there's there's an audible pause as my dad thinks about his answer. And he goes, I don't know, Protestant. And, and then she looks down, takes another drag and goes, they want you to be more specific. And that was the longest religious conversation that ever occurred in the household I grew oh, up in. That's so good. And oh. so and so like that's why like that, like sort of his religious stuff just has no 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 relevance or meaning to me like i get i get the references but sort of like the whole like like it's sort of like similar to like george carlin's catholic stuff which i actually think is a lot funnier mm -hmm. but at the same time it's sort of like a totally alien world to me it's not not something i understand at all sure yeah no i i get that you, you it's one of those you know, we talk sometimes about having to put yourself in the mind mindset of the audience at the time. Yeah, uh, it's harder to put yourself in the mindset of an audience with a different life experience yeah. entirely. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, that's so funny. Like again, like something like this, you can you can especially if you've got enough reference points, you can flip yourself back and be like, okay, I can picture myself in this audience or whatever one pic. You have never talked to anybody really about what they picture when they listen to a stand up and I, uh, record, and I I usually think I picture just the person on stage and and just a blur of people in the audience. I don't ever picture until somebody speaks and says something specific. Then I think my brain tries to picture them, but I think I'm only just picturing the person on stage. It feels very isolated. I, I guess. I, I, I'm 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 very different. I'm a huge Bob Fosse fan. He's my favorite director of all time. Mm-hmm. Whenever I listen to a comedy album, I I see scenes from Lenny in mm-hmm. my head. Like even not, like not even if it's Lenny Bruce. Like it's funny because a lot of Lenny Bruce albums I've heard probably didn't look anything like that. But that's still <laughs> like that's like when he's doing the Palladium bit. Like that's what mm-hmm. I imagine in my head is sort of like Dustin Hoffman in the smoky like sort of like uh, nightclub. Or, or even like I guess like sort of like I also sort of imagine like sort of like Miss Maisel like that sort of like atmosphere too like that so like to me like very much I do see the audience in the bit like in my head like that mm-hmm. is and like sometimes like it's it is like sometimes there's some albums you can tell were recorded in a nightclub and some were recorded in a theater and it does tend to like make a difference in the album like that it does sort of like affect sort of like like how you how you appreciate it like as you listen to it. Mm-hmm. I I wonder if that comes from me being wanting desperately to be the guy up on stage. I think that could be, even though I don't want to do stand up, I feel like that might be maybe that's the difference. Cuz not to say fuck the audience, but my brain is just very specifically like how would I have done that bit? Uh how could I improve that bit? My brain does that even if I think it's a perfect bit. It doesn't matter. So I wonder well, if that has anything to do with it. I think I think maybe cuz I also I've done like I've I, I've I've never done like stand up specifically in the stand up milieu, mm-hmm. but I have done solo performative stuff where the intention was to get laughs in front of a large audience. Like if you mm-hmm. Google Alan Mott and Petra Kucha on YouTube, you'll find three pieces I've done in front of an audience, and like I I I, I knew I knew uh, I was good because the, my, the local for people who don't know what Petra Kucha is. Mm-hmm. It's basically this thing the Japanese created, and it's basically uh, an obnoxious slideshow. Because okay. you have 20 slides, <laughs> and each slide goes by for exactly 20 seconds. So you have exactly 6 minutes and 40 seconds for for the slideshow. And there are, it, when they tell you about how to do the Pechacucha, which is usually supposed to be about one subject, it's not about random slides. Uh-huh. Like one subject, like all of the slides are, are a tribute to one subject is that you should like just you know just wing it let it be loose like and like no i like i've <laughs> i have like i know exactly how many words i can say per slide and each slide like goes into what the next slide is saying like i have written this out it is close mm-hmm. as i have gotten to writing like a, a stand-up routine are, are these bits my last one was about uh uh about how my, my atheism was pretty much inspired by me reading a religious archie comic on a family road trip <laughs> and uh and and the story i read was about hot dog jughead's dog uh he uh he 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 wonders what it would be like to be a person and how cool it would be but at the end of the comic jughead is like oh you can never be a person and you can never go to heaven because you're an animal and you have no soul and so as a 10 year old i'm reading this and like wait so there are no dogs in heaven fuck that bullshit <laughs> 
And that's pretty much what drove me away, like beyond beyond the fact that I was raised in a household that had no religion in it. Sure. Like it was like like if 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 these religious people are telling me that there are no dogs in heaven, then like I am having nothing to do with them. And so that's like sort of that's that's the bit is like the my Petra Kutcher, my most recent one. And and I got laughs. Like I actually did a really good job. And I think mm-hmm. part of that is like I think uh, I have. Uh, having listened to these albums, because I would, like I said, I would listen to these albums when I would go to bed at night. They were basically my equivalent of bedtime stories. So a lot of these like like cadences and deliveries, I literally like when when people like would listen to like uh, self help tapes while they sleep to like you know get it in their head and their unconscious. Like it's literally like I literally have George Carlin bits in my unconscious <laughs> because I listened to Class Clown a thousand times when I was a teenager. You know, at, at, in bed at night. So I think yeah, very much like I have that same sort of thing where uh, I, I I listen to these albums and. Uh, I, I like I said before, I listen to like the music of it. I listen to sort of the delivery, and I think that's why I sort of I really enjoy sort of like uh, guys like Steinberg and, and, and like Klein. And I, I'm 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 less a fan of guys who are just like you know riffing and making it up as they go along, mm-hmm. because like I, I I like sort of like the you know sort of the the performance aspect of it, like the actual like sort of like taking it and like i mean to me the classic is bob newhart is probably like my favorite like the fact that he could just you know the the delivery is just so perfect and like yes every time you heard it was exactly the same but it was the same it was like when you go to see adele perform you don't want her to see and do a a new version uh, uh, of someone like you you want to see her do someone like you exactly the way that it makes you hit hit your heart hole Mm -hmm. and and i think that's the same with the comedians when you see, see them do a classic bit yeah they can change it up but and and, and do it in fun ways, but a part of you wants to see the classic bit. There's no doubt about it. Have you seen or had an opportunity to see David Steinberg live? No, no, okay. I don't. I don't in even know. Or like once he became a director, I don't even sure. know if he, if he if he continued to do stand up. He's done uh, like his because he, he had a, like an interesting post like uh, post like comedian career. Mm-hmm. Like he tried he tried to get into acting, but he just he's too stiff. He doesn't really like have like he did a a romantic comedy with Susan Sarandon called uh, Something Short of Paradise, which uh, I've never seen. I actually right before this, I found that uh, you can uh, on uh, IMDb, you can find the episode of Siskel and Ebert where they review the movie and Gene Siskel calls it one of the worst clones of Annie Hall. And, and and watching the two scenes, like you totally understand what he means. Like they they are actively painful to to watch. I can't no. imagine seeing the whole whole movie. Like he he's he's trying to be this charming romantic leading man, and and he sounds like the guy on the record albums, and it doesn't work. Like he doesn't. He, there's no trace of like humanity or realism. And and also he's sitting next to Susan Sarandon, and it's hard to compute. Yeah. Which which apparently like apparently like the thing that you know it's one of those things where. It makes no sense to our eyes now, but apparently he was quite the ladies' man in in his era. There's in, in Quality Balls. There's a, a an anecdote about a friend coming to pick him up and opening the door, and Tuesday Weld opens the door. And for like for for younger listeners who don't get who don't understand what that means, imagining going to your friend's apartment and Margot Robbie opens the door. That's that level of hot blonde opening the mm-hmm, door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like whenever I interview Phil Proctor of the Fireside Theater and every other word out of his mouth is one of the women from the 60s that he dated or knew. And I'm just yeah. like, what the fuck was your life, man? Yeah. Tuesday Weld included. Uh, just, yeah, that that is, it's a very, it's a weird conversation every time. 
I love well, it. And that and that's apparently like David Steinberg. Like he's very much so one of those guys funny. who like who like every like Dick Cavett. Like every he he's met every single person and has a story for every single person. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I mean, completely fair. If sure. I was that dude, I would be that dude. Mm-hmm. Like it so happens that I don't I don't I don't have that list of names to to throw out. But if I could, I absolutely would and shamelessly. Sure. And, and, and then he tried to, he tried to do a he had he tried to do a sitcom. But it didn't get past the pilot stage. It's called "My Dad a Dog," my my dad's a dog, which isn't which isn't what you would think it would be. It's actually about a, an actor who gets hired to be in a show called "My Dad's a Dog," which is about a dad being reincarnated as a dog. So it would have been a meta thing where like his kids are embarrassed that he's on this really lame sitcom. And I actually remember seeing the pilot because like back in the '80s, what they would do is they would have like things called like a, the CBS Summer Playhouse, where they would like like fill up time by showing like failed pilots love it and they, they, they would try to make it they would try to make it like uh audience interactive because you could phone up phone and say like did you like this show you know vote for it and it may become a series and not a single show they aired ever actually became a series <laughs> because they were all like you could all see why they actually didn't become there wasn't a single one like why didn't this make it to air it's like oh yeah that's why this didn't make it to, wow. well it made it to air but why didn't make it to series Wow. And so beyond that, he actually, he ended up becoming a director. And mm-hmm. uh, I think like uh, it was Burt Reynolds who was actually to blame for that. He had him uh, direct a movie called Paternity, which is a really sort of forgettable, not not very good sort of uh, comedy about uh, Burt Reynolds trying to find a woman to have his baby for him. And, uh, and then uh, he followed that up with a movie that uh, a lot of the SCTV people are in called uh, Going Berserk. Uh, and it's not great. Like for, you, mm-hmm. for, for all the people in it, like it's it's one of those ones where like that whole period is full of disappointing movies with SCVTV cast members. Like if, if you've seen Armed and Dangerous, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and it's it, and it's 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 kind of at that level, but it has one truly brilliant scene. It's probably one of the funniest scenes that John Candy ever appeared in, which is uh, in the course of the movie, he ends up getting handcuffed at Ernie Hudson. And uh, they're on the lam from the police and Ernie Hudson decides that he has to visit his girlfriend who he hasn't seen in a while. Mm-hmm. And so Ernie Hudson goes to his girlfriend's apartment and they ha- have like John Candy stand outside the door while they're still hand off together. And then we see him as his body is jerked around as Ernie Hudson and his girlfriend have sex together <laughs> it, it, by, on the other side of the door. And it's purely a thing where it's purely like John Candy being physically a physical comic. And it is true. If you, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube if, if you look at it. Like, like just watch that clip and you'll see everything you need to see out of going berserk and uh and it's brilliant but then but then like as far as his directing career i i know jason can agree with me on this he has directed at least one masterpiece Mm -hmm. the wrong guy the wrong guy yeah it's probably probably the most underrated comedy of the entire 90s Mm -hmm. cala cranston's and hilmington (laughs) that's one of the funniest things that's ever been i'm trying to think who who is it that one of my news radio fellow news radio nerds online calls themselves Enema Bag Jones. That is their name online. And <laughs> come on now, it's hard. By the way, I, I don't feel I feel like I'm doing the film a disservice by just quoting some jokes that don't make sense unless you've seen it. But it is a very brilliant movie, and it's uh, you know David Steinberg was given something good to work with and did a good job with it. Did a great job with it. But it's funny because he appears to like like if you listen to the comedy on the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. he leaves like a third of the way through because he has to go see a house with his wife. (laughs) 
and then when, when they recently had the reunion on Zoom, mm-hmm. he had technical issues. So he went, so it's sort of like at the same point, it's the only thing, it's really the, the only thing in terms of film mm-hmm. that he should be justifiably proud of. But every time he gets to talk about it, like it's very truncated and he doesn't really get into it. <laughs> the one live Q&A I saw for it, he wasn't there. Yeah. His, 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 uh, his TV, he, he, since then, like he, he's basically made his living since then as a TV director. Mm-hmm. He, he directed pretty much like the majority of Mad About You. That was his big, big gig oh, yeah. for a right. long time. And uh, he also has directed quite a few episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So those are like his big, 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 uh, big shows since then and he did a, a a show that's on prime called inside comedy where he interviews like comedians and stuff like that it's a, a fun interesting show if you're interested in comedy do you well here tell tell the folks at home why why listen to this album because i'm gonna i dare say a lot of people listening to this know nothing about david steinberg so not to be rude to david steinberg i'm just saying i know the audience so why listen to this record i mean if if you're someone like me who has sort of like whose whose interest in pop culture is as much historical as uh, for entertainment purposes. Like mm-hmm. it's very much a time capsule of a very specific kind of performer in a very specific period. And like while there are bits that sort of like have transcended time and are relevant to today, there are also elements of this album that really could have only existed in 1974. And I think that is like if you. Like I, like if you want to just hear something that is timeless and classic and will always be good, you have your Richard Pryor, you have your George Carlin, you have those albums and enjoy them. But I think like it, it, it pays to like, and I think this also kind of applies to Robert Klein, who I think I think overall is a better stand-up comedian. But uh, I think his albums also have that sort of quality of being very much of that moment and of being for a very specific generation. Because a lot of what Robert Klein talks about is being a child of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're not a child of the 1950s, a lot of that stuff, you, you will be lost unless, you know, you actually you know have spent a lot of time studying the 1950s. Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's, that's a uh, perfect, uh, concise description. Okay, now. Um, I would need you to promote yourself and the things you do, but I need you to talk about Canadian content regulations. Please hit me with your thoughts on Canadian content. Uh, well, Canadian content for people who don't know is basically it, Canada is a very small country. It's 30 million people on top of 300 million people. And so the idea is that for Canada to have any culture at all, we have to basically force our networks and our radio station stations to play Canadian material because otherwise they would only play American stuff. So the idea is that if, if a, a piece of material uh, meets a certain amount of Canadian content, that means the performer is Canadian, the, uh, the, the, the place where it was created is Canadian and the producers are Canadian. If it meets, meets two out of those three variables, then it's considered Canadian content. And then, uh, then, then it is easier for it to get played on Canadian radio and on Canadian TV stations because they are obligated by law to play a certain percentage of Canadian content. And also, it help, like, and, and also, it doesn't even have to be a Canadian thing. Like, there are a lot of like movies that count as Canadian content because they were shot in Canada and the star is Canadian, even though they were produced by a Hollywood studio. 
like like uh, a Ryan Reynolds movie that was shot in Canada, for example, would count as Canadian content, even if it was produced by by Americans. And I, I, you know, I have no problem with it. Like I, I tend to be very judgmental when it was stuff like like I, I love like a show like Top Chef, mm-hmm. but I would never in a million years watch Top Top Chef Canada because it is ju- it's just such a pale like weak ass like carbon like it's what you would what you would get if you're taking something from like a population that is literally a tenth of the size of the population the other show has to to deal with and so that's why like I have I I don't watch a lot of shows that are specifically Canadian content but also like I'm completely happy that Canadian content exists of course I mean it's very important and if it weren't for that you wouldn't have Range Rider and the Calgary Kid which I suggest people look up and I don't know if, I don't know <laughs> if it's on YouTube or not I don't know if it's on YouTube or not, but it's a very young Michael well, Myers. And also, like, uh, Bob and Duncan McKenzie exist because of Canadian content. Of because the reason why they exist was because they were told uh, for the Canadian version, the Canadian version of SCTV was a minute longer than the American version. And so they, the producer said, well, we want that one extra minute to be specifically Canadian content, to be, like, something that only applies to Canada. And so they were like, okay, fuck you guys. We'll create the most like stereotyped, like hoser sort of like thing. And it ended up becoming the most popular thing that the show ever produced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're action figures. They're very good looking action figures. Though, <laughs> I will point out, you know, but that, that's what happens when, you know, a Canadian makes action figures. Apparently the best action figures on the planet. Thank you, Tom McFarlane. Uh, <laughs> Alan, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Tell people about yourself. Uh, well, they can find me on Twitter at House of Glib. Same with Instagram. Uh, and you can uh, find my, my personal website is called Vanity Fear. And uh, you can find stuff like that. I actually just put up my first uh, post in two years on that. I take a, a very long and uh, boring look at the Hammer Frankenstein movies. <laughs> I love it. That's so good. Uh, you're a good follow. You're a good follow. Come on, people. Follow Alan. Um, my goodness. Thank you so much for doing the show. Well, thank you for uh, letting me do it. Um, And, well, that's it. Thank you guys for listening. And, as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!